please start. This one, this one, Kingdom. In case you walk by the goodies, among the goodies back there is another kind of goodie. It, it's papers. Um, I put back there um, a set on cosmology and. Um, something that goes into just a, um, a brief page with notes that have to do with different aspects of the Iliad that I'm sure not going to be familiar to most of you, maybe to the teachers, not so, but um, just some brief notes on issues like time and different orders of action that, that um, you're, you're not going to think of because we're we carry modern notions in our head, and so reading a book like the Iliad is not going to be easy for a lot of people because it asks us to step into a different kind of time. Gods are coming in and out, and the past is in and out, and it, it's just, it can be a strange reading for lots of people. Anyway, there's some notes back there that should help. If you take anything, particularly the cosmology, if you could all leave some, a donation to cover the cost of the printing again. There's, um, a good amount tonight. And there also, there's also a sheet of poems that I'd like to read. I'm not going to do it tonight, but next week, or uh, sorry, next time we meet, I'll, I'll want to do it. Two of the poems are by major poets who are somewhat contemporary. One of them is um, William Butler Yeats, who wrote a poem on the background of the Iliad. It's called Lead in the Swan. It has to do with the birth of Helen. Because remember, she's the one who ostensibly is at the, at, the, at the root of the war. There's more going on at the root of the war, but she's certainly um, principal to it. So anyway, there's some poems back there, so make sure you pick them all up, okay? Um, let's see, practical stuff. Tonight will be our last meeting until I think the second week of January. We're going to be off for a couple of weeks. So I'm sure I'll say this, I kind of can't believe I'd forget it at the end of class, but I just want to wish everybody a good Christmas. Um, sometimes it's hard to have a Merry Christmas. Merry is, I mean, people carry lots of expectations and burdens. It's a, it's a period of such expectations that, and so often Christmas doesn't live up to them and, and carry shadows with us. Anyway, I hope it is a good, Christmas for everybody. Um, the, the, the prayer that I'll offer tonight will be in the spirit of um, um, Gaudate Sunday, the weekend of rejoicing. Um, but anyway, we won't pick up until the second week of January. Um, I'm struck by the irony of, of what we're doing tonight. We're going into Christmas and we're reading what I believe is the greatest war story ever told. <laughs> Um, you, if you've started, I hope you have, and if, if you're well enough along now, you, you should be used to passages where Homer's describing 
a spear going through some man's genitals with the genitals hanging off on the other side or going through a head with an eyeball dangling from the spear, a head being cut off or um, I'm laughing at it. Um, in some sense, it's not funny. Part of the beauty of what Homer's done is that he's given us such a truthful rendering, rendition of war. You know, I mean, if people are in Afghanistan or whoever across the world, when men are getting blown up or women and their legs are getting ripped off, it's never pretty. War's not pretty. Um, all I can say is that in one sense it's appropriate because the church located Christmas in the dead of winter. It was at that moment when we had um, least to expect of the world. It's the darkest time of the year. It's the darkest. Um, you know that Mary and Joseph are going to have to flee. So it's not as if we can romanticize Christmas and everything about our modern world wants to romanticize Christmas. It's sweet and nice and um, if we're true to the call, we should carry to Christmas heavy burdens. We're human. There's a lot in the world that's not good. And rejoice. That's our call. So that will be my prayer. Anyway, we'll pick up again, um, I think, the second week of January. Okay? Um, any questions about that? Are we all? Everybody's okay? All of you have a good Christmas. All of you have a good Christmas. Whatever burdens, find a place in your heart to rejoice. Make that real. Okay, um, any prayer requests? Michael, yeah. Good for you. Yeah, good for you. What's his name? John. John. Do you have a pencil, Don? I thought I had one. If you don't, don't worry about it. Anybody else? Anybody else? There's packets, papers to pick up, and some food, too. Nobody else? I can't believe this. Aunt, sorry? For my aunt, Joan. Aunt Joan? Uh, she's had stomach cancer and stage four. Um, she's gone through routine therapy and radiation. She's in Ohio. Uh, she's not doing well. So I just pray for her. Okay, good. Sorry? I'm sorry. Denise, what, what, I'm sorry, what's the problem? Cancer. cancer. How old is she? 47. 47. Yeah. Did she have surgery? What degree? What, what degree is it? Do you know? Two. Two? That's hopeful. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, and I'd ask for everybody's prayers for um, our middle sons. 
who are struggling with some things, just hold them in your mind, hearts if you would. Thomas and Christopher. Um, okay, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you and the gift of yourself to us and the gift of yourself in the Mass. I, I'm, I'm going to do something a little bit awkward here. And sorry, you guys should have said this before. I want to include in the prayer lines from St. Paul in, in his letter to the um, Philippians because they go directly to the, the week of Adate or Gadate. Um, extraordinary gift to us, our church and our faith. These seasons, they're like fall and winter and spring. Um, the church is so one with our nature in a way other religions are not. Um, we're responsive to the world outside of us. It's winter, trees are bare, things are dying. There's a, a kind of naked beauty to things, seeing trees that are bare, we know that those trees will come to life again. So we live in winter with this hope, waiting for the spring to come. It's that season now in Advent. It's a time of waiting. Now in this third week, um, Gaudati week, we're asked to rejoice while we wait. So we're asked to repent. This is a season of repenting. You ask us to take on our sins, to carry burdens. Um, help us to do that with a greater effort of making carrying with us a spirit of rejoicing, being glad and hopeful. So I ask a blessing on all of us here that we make this real, not just in words, get us out of our heads, out of words. That's Paroli's world. That's, where, that's what Shakespeare made us see. It's so easy to live in words and not carry our bodies or our wills. So in this third season, um, Strengthen us in our efforts to rejoice, to be glad, to look forward, to hope. Our hope isn't real until we have no reason for hope. That means whatever our sorrows are, you ask us to hope, to trust in you. Help each one of us to do that, to make that real. Um, ask a blessing on um, John. Um, um, what to say? He's not young. Help him. Open his heart um, to prepare himself. He's, um, he's, he's past the age of preparing um, to leave this world. Um, help him. Let something open his heart to you um, to know the goodness that's here, even if he didn't see it, and to look forward to the greater goodness of being with you. Help him do that. And I ask a special prayer for Michael that his heart be at rest in what's going on and, um, and that he take um, some trust, some gratitude that he can pray. Um, um, even, if, even if John doesn't know those prayers, um, we all hope that one day he will know what Michael has been doing for him and be grateful. Um, ask for, I'm sorry, Mich the daughter, Mich Denise, watch over her in her recovery. Um, heal her, please, help heal her 
and through this struggle, um, help her to grow in your faith and faith in you to find some strength in these difficulties. Sometimes we have to be terribly weakened before we turn to you. Help, help us not to wait on those moments. And sorry. Aunt Joan. Sorry. I know, but she's... She's and Stomach cancer, yeah. Well, and Christy, yeah? Watch over Joan. Um, she's not young either and getting close to leaving this world. So help her prepare her heart. Help her to be at ease knowing that whatever suffering um, will tie her to your cross to, to find a greater trust, even a joy in your cross. It's where we've all been called. And be with Christy. Christy, let her heart be at peace um, to get herself ready also to let go of her aunt. Um, prepared, prepare her to stand in your present to know the joy of being with you. It's what we all long for, even if we sometimes can't see it. We offer all these prayers. Um, and I offer a special prayer for our sons and for all of us um, to be well, be glad in this Christmas season. Um, hopefully that we will be together again second week of January. Let a peace be with us through this season. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, um, I don't, oh, I know. I, you, you may have it. Um, if you, if you don't, don't worry about it. The poem I'm going to read, I think I've already read once before. It's the psalm from the packet that I gave you. But honestly, you don't need it. You can just listen to it. I'm going to read Psalm 127 because of its relevance to the Iliad and what's happening. And I think because it's appropriate for this Gaudate season. So what I'd like to do is read um, Psalm 127. It's a little bit like a prayer. And then I'm going to read Paul's passages from Philippians that speak specifically to this um, Gaudate week. Okay? So, Psalm 127. It's a, it's a lyric, but it's a prayer. So I hope everybody will hear it partly as a prayer. Okay? Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. We're going to learn this in spades in the Iliad because what we're going to discover is if people build cities, if they build walls, both of those things are going to happen in the Iliad. If they do it without paying attention to the gods, those cities, those walls are going to come down. It's just a fact. Homer knew that if men tried to do anything without God's help, it was doomed to fail. If you haven't experienced that already, you'll, you'll find it. So it's, it's a central theme that a spirit that runs through the Iliad. And I chose 127 because it speaks so directly to it, okay? Psalm 127. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. We can go on and on and on, pushing ourselves exceeding our limits, doing great things. If we don't do it in the Lord, it's in vain. 
It's vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. For lo, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. Lo, children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies the gate. He'll have the courage to face whatever he faces. He will not step back. He will not put up his arms and say, my job, I'm done. It's all I've done my job. Whatever he's facing, he will stand up. He'll have an answer. That's um, Psalm 127. This is from Paul's letter to the Philippians. The, the first word, uh, this is from Philippians 4.4. 4. Okay, the fourth section in the fourth verse. The first word of the section is gaudate, rejoice, rejoice, okay? This is Paul and its spirit. Rejoice in the Lord always. I shall say it again. Your kindness should be known to all. The Lord is near. Have no anxiety at all, but in everything by prayer and petition. With thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. Then the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is gracious, if there is any excellence and if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Keep on doing what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. Rejoice greatly in the Lord that now at last you received your concern for me. You were, of course, concerned about me, but lacked an opportunity. Not that I say this because of need, for I have learned in whatever situation I find myself to be self-sufficient. I know indeed how to live in humble circumstances. I know also how to live with abundance. In every circumstance, in all things, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry of living in abundance and of being in need. I have the strength for everything through him who empowers me. Still, it was kind of you to share in my distress. You Philippians indeed know that at the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, not a single church shared with me in an account of giving and receiving except you alone. For even when I was at Thessalonica, you sent me something for my needs, not only once, but more than once. It's not that I'm eager for the gift, rather I'm eager for the profit that accrues to your account. That is, that they thought enough of him to do it. He's glad for them. I have received full payment and I abound. I'm very well supplied because of what I received from you through Epaphroditus, a fragrant aroma an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. My God will fully supply whatever you need in accord with his glorious riches in Christ Jesus to our God and Father, glory forever and ever, amen. The words in the mass, you know this, I mean, the words in the mass, be always and everywhere thankful, whatever the circumstances. We can't go through the world thinking that we will only be happy if we have all of our material needs met. Trusting everybody know that Paul says whatever in his poverty in his abundance he was with Christ
So that's our prayers and our lyrics for this Christmas season. Okay. Okay. Can you all take out the prophecy um, timeline chart that I gave you at the very beginning? We haven't looked at it, but I want to take a minute with it today. have it looks like this you all have it okay. turn to the side that says timeline for epics and scripture I'm not going to take any time with this I just want to briefly show you what I think is an amazing thing you know that the title of this course is literature is prophecy so see if we can find Christ where ordinarily we don't see him but um if he's our God and we take him at his word, he said, not the fall of a sparrow, not the hair on a head. He, he knows our hearts. He knows everything that's going on. When we get to Boethius, if we're still together by then, um, Boethius is going to make the argument that there's no bad fortune. None. None. The argument that he'll make is um, our God is a God of love. So no matter what stupid things we do, in our arrogance, in our pride, in our blindness, no matter what we do, not loving as we should, whatever we, whatever we do, he will always, always be working to bring some good out of that. So what's evil to us, in some sense, won't be to him. He's already at work bringing good out of it. Um, the, um, St. Thomas said that the reason for prophecy in our tradition is that there some things that we need that we can't get except through God. We need help. There's so much we can do for ourselves to reach our last end. The pagans knew God. Plato and Aristotle's arguments for the existence of God are, for me, pretty cogent. They're pretty convincing. But Thomas said, I think rightfully, that um, there, there are things we need for our salvation that we can't give to ourselves. We need him. So he's offered us prophecy, scripture, to give us something we can't give ourselves to help us achieve our last end. It's a way of revealing his work in the world, basically. And if you've read scripture, you know that's, I mean, just take Book of Kings, you know, just for one example. If you watch the kings do what they do, take David, whom God loved. And he loved him seriously. Take David, he committed murder and he committed adultery. God loved him, didn't stop loving him when he committed adultery. And so there's, there's nothing in Scripture that, that really should surprise us. It's, it's our human nature doing the things that we do. But through it all, God's showing himself at work, that he's doing something in our lives, even if we don't see him. So Scripture is offered as a gift to us to help us attain our salvation, because we can't do it on our own. I've been arguing that literature is prophetic in one sense. It's not, um, it, it's not expressing um, revelations from God directly. So it's not prophetic in that sense. It's on this side of prophecy. 
It's poets who seem to have some sense of God that, that what they give us resembles prophecy so strongly that at least I can call it prophetic in some ways. That they're helping us to see something about ourselves and the really great poets are actually showing God at work in the world. Okay, so if you look at um, Portia, say, or Helena, um, what else? Anthony and Cleopatra. If you read those plays attentively, closely, and pay attention to what the poets are doing, it seems to me it's really hard not to ask whether God's not active in their world. Shakespeare never shows God working in the world, visibly. But you can't read a sequence of events without asking, is this all coincidence? Something amazing is happening? What's going on here? In Homer, the gods are going to be visible. Okay? But that hasn't been true of the literature we've been reading so far. Okay? So the argument that I've been making from the beginning is there's something prophetic to the really great works of literature, that these poets see things that other poets don't. And the value of it for me is that um, by learning to see other people more closely, when a writer does something that helps us identify with characters, let it be Othello, let it be Anthony and Cleopatra, it makes it harder for us to make black-white judgments about other people because we're so quick to condemn. We're so quick to find fault and give ourselves reasons for not doing something. In the literature that we've been reading, we're seeing people who, are, who have flaws, but who are good, and they help us. We can see the things we can do to make ourselves better. We can also think, see the things we should make efforts not to do to make ourselves better. In all of them, God is at work helping bring about these good ends that all these plays have. So, in amazing ways, the literature lines up, great works of literature line up with um, the prophetic tradition. Now, take a look at that page just for a second. I've given you the timeline. Abraham gets called out. Now stop and just think about even just that for a second. Abraham gets called out. One of the things we're going to discover in reading these epics is every one of these epic poets has a calling. They're speaking to God about a problem for a people. In the Iliad, it's going to be for the Greeks. Okay? For um, Virgil, it'll be for the Romans. For Dante, it'll be for the Italians, but the universal church. Dante will be speaking as a Catholic. Um, so each one of these poets is called out to perform some divine task, to speak as a poet, to bring his people back to some order that they've lost. That's going to be true of every poet. Homer, Virgil, Dante as a Catholic. Um, Francis, two years ago, asked everybody in our church, asked everybody in our church to read Divine Comedy. I don't know if everybody heard that call, but he did. He said, he um, it was his way of asking the church to come back to itself, to recover some things that it had lost, because reading Dante will help us get, get to them. Abraham's called out in 1850. He's asked to leave a life behind in order to fulfill something. Does he understand it? He's giving up his family, his home, everything. Does he have a clue about what it's going to cost him? Absolutely not. Any more than the pilgrims when they left Europe to come here to found America. So what's behind this work is... First of all, the calling out of somebody to carry out God's will. It eventually is going to lead to the, lead to the exodus from Egypt and then the, settle, the settlement in the promised land. Now the interesting thing is that roughly at the same time that um, 
Israel is being founded, that the people, a people chosen, picked out by God to carry out his will, roughly the same time that's happening, Troy is being destroyed. And what Homer's going to say, what he's going to show us about that is, what's happening in that destruction is that a new order is coming into being. It's not just about the destruction of Troy. Um, Achilles is going to be the means of founding a new order. That lines up with what's going on in the settlement in Israel, in the promised land. Does Homer have any clue? I don't think so. What I'm trying to do is just suggest there are these amazing correspondences that in the natural tradition, these poets are so close to what's going on in the holy tradition, even if they're not aware of it. So Troy is destroyed about 1200, roughly mid-13th century sometime. This is what's amazing. Homer wasn't there to see that war. The story that he tells us, he's received by means of an oral tradition. The story's just passed on, okay? The source of wisdom in the ancient world was from what these people called bards. They're bards, or, or vates. The Romans called them vates, V-A-T-E-S, vates. Seers, okay? The epic poet was the seer, the prophet in a community. He's the one that pulled a community together and gave it its sense of unity. So typically, what you, you'll find this, we'll actually see it in the, in the Odyssey because Odysseus is going to sit down and, and so does Demodocus. They're both going to sit down in the middle of the community and tell their tales. The poet was the center of a wisdom, a, a community. He's the one that held everybody together, that gave a community its coherence, its shared belief. The poem was thought of as being the means of learning. It was encyclopedic. There wasn't anything it didn't cut, cover. When you read the Iliad, you're going to find... It, there's nothing it doesn't, how to take care of horses, how to train a soldier, what to do in your family, you know, the Odyssey, the Iliad, the Aeneid, all of them. The, the epic was the source of learning. It was the source of wisdom. The belief in the gods, the shared religious beliefs were all there. It's a little, like, a little bit like the liturgy for us. Okay? Christ hadn't come into the world yet. Homer was not even present to this war. He doesn't write until 400 years later. So what he gets is the fruit of an oral tradition that's been passed on. But what he does with it radically changes it. And it isn't until 300 years later, three or 400 years later, that finally the Iliad and the Odyssey are written down. So the, the Iliad and the Odyssey are passed on as oral tradition. Can you imagine? I mean, I want everybody to just grapple with this for a minute. This man, by the way, Homer was blind. We think he's, it's pretty certain he was blind. He did these poems verbatim by memory. When I hear students complaining about the length of the Iliad, imagine how much sympathy I have for them. <laughs> we were reading this thing. He, he did it by heart. He had this in him. He created it. He was not there at the war. He wasn't present to experience it. But this man, whatever vision, whatever source of inspiration, it made it possible for him to recreate this and pass it down. And it's clear, I think, if it's not clear now, it will be when we finish this work, that what he did was, was extraordinary. I'm going to claim now, I think you'll see that 
there's good ground for what I'm claiming. It is, along with Genesis, um, the founding work of Western civilization. It's going to radically change the way we look at human beings. That's how important it is. That's from Homer. So you've got the prophetic tradition on one hand, and you've got literature on the other, and it's just extraordinary to watch these things unfold. What's at bottom of what's going on in the, the prophetic tradition is the founding of a people. God called Abram out um, with the purpose of helping him to found a nation that would be God's people. And he had a mission for them that they would never keep it to themselves. That's so true. They had a universal mission. They would take it out to the world. They would be servants to take this out. You know that that didn't happen. Christ comes into the world. But what's at issue there is the founding of a nation, the 12 tribes. What's the theme of every major epic? The refounding of a people. Troy is going to be destroyed, and out of that war will come the founding of a new order with a new understanding of the human person. And that's going to be the central theme of every epic we read. It'll be the central theme of the Iliad. It'll be the central theme of the Odyssey. It'll be the central theme and, and greatly universalized with Dante in the Commedia. This, this constant need for a people to, to, re, to renew itself, to refound itself. So at the heart of every epic is a battle. There's some disorder among a people. They do not see it. They don't understand it. A hero is picked out. He has a divinely appointed task, and it's on the basis of what he does that a new spirit will be brought into this people and help it reconstitute itself, give itself a new identity. That's at the base, that's at the basis of every epic. Look how it lines up with what's going on in the Bible. So if you look at that first page, you've got those traditions lining up and going to Virgil in the, in the Pax Romana. What's going to happen in Virgil? Aeneas, when, here, this is what's amazing. Now, he's going back 800 years, 1,200 years. Let me, here, I want to be clear. Virgil's writing 1st century B.C., around 70 B.C., okay? He takes as his theme the founding of Rome. Who's his hero? It's Aeneas. Where did he come from? He's one of the survivors of the destruction of Troy. So the Aeneid is going back to the Iliad. In fact, he's going to be one of the great heroes on the Trojan sign. One of the few to survive. Virgil's going to take him as his hero, and after Troy's destroyed, he's going to be given a mission by the gods to found the city. This city is going to be unlike any city that's ever existed in the world before. The city will be universal and eternal. It will not die. That's Rome. When Aeneas sets out to found cities, every city that he founds dies again, 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 again. He keeps failing again, again, again. He's got, C.S. Lewis has argued, rightly, that the theme of a calling comes into existence in Virgil. Aeneas has this calling. He thinks he's got it, turns the corner, gone. Thinks he's got it again, gone. It's like a priest having a calling, thinking he's called, and then every year he finds himself failing in what he's doing. Could be in a marriage. Like you're called together and you keep tripping over yourselves and finding these struggles and you wonder if you should stay married or, you know, it's just this calling 
that you keep finding that it's not what you thought it was. He persists, he endures until he comes, returns, and he doesn't even know it. He's returning to his ancient past, his ancient homeland. Didn't even know that that was where he was from. And it led Ellie to say, from Dante, because he got it from Dante, where did Dante get it? From Virgil. In my beginning is my end. In my end is my beginning. He's setting out thinking he's going to this new place and discovers that's where he was from all along. We're all from God. Surprise. Where are we supposed to end up? (laughs) However much of it's a surprise, it's where we started. So this wonderful theme of in my beginning is my end. Aeneas is going through all these struggles, defeated again and again and again, and comes to Italy and founds the city. It's going to be the eternal universal city. It's going to be the one city in the world in which everybody can get along. Race differences, sexual differences will not keep people apart. It's the one city (coughs) in which people are meant to get along. The Greeks and Trojans, Turks, that's the world of the Iliad. Trojans and the Greeks are fighting each other because they've got differences in their ethos. Before Aeneas can found Rome, he's going to have to do battles that are ethnic. People are going to be killing each other because of ethnic differences. Rome, Rome will not come into existence without, over, without overcoming the deepest wrongs in our character, our ethnic differences. So there it, again, there it is again, a refounding. Except in this case, it's founding the city that will never die. And I hope everybody sees where this is going because 10, 20 years later, who's coming into the world? Christ. To found the new Jerusalem, the eternal city that will never die, in which all people will get along. So every one of these epics is lining up in some amazing way. These great poets, it's as if they have some glimpse of something that lines up with the Bible, and all of them are converging on this point. Okay? So if you turn the page, you'll see that what I've done is just showed you the, the, the movement from the, epo- the epos and epic towards the novel and modernity, and that's where we started with Shakespeare. But if we stay together, what I'm going to do after we get through the epics is we'll pick up with Scarlet Letter and Moby Dick, and we'll be in the world of, of the novel, the modern novel, and what those poets are doing. So there it is. That's our, by the way, I'm not, and I'm not trying to be cute here, that's our Catholic heritage. And it's virtually lost today. Virtually lost. How many people know this tradition? Because it is universal. Um, okay, that's just a sort of rough outline, just to, you know, to show you that something amazing is going on. So even though we're going back, and it may sound like a strange world we're going back to, in some sense it should be home. This is, this is where we all started. So, before we turn to the Iliad, any, any thoughts or questions or arguments? Or, from the teacher's table. Yeah. Think with literature past that point would also be pointing back, back. to that same point. So everything is aimed at that fullness of time. 
yeah, yeah well, oh God, it's a problem with having a teacher's table. Um, um, let, let me give you two examples just to show you how complicated it is. Um, um, it seems to me up until the Renaissance, up until the Copernican Revolution, that what you're describing is pretty true. If you look at all literature up until the, say, 16th, 17th century, Shakespeare, Milton, t take Milton. Milton takes the fall as his topic. You can take almost any great poet in the Renaissance and he'll be looking back to Eden. Remember, I've been saying that from the beginning, all poetry, it, it, it's haunted with Eden. Um, um, and most of the Christian poets writing then will know that all the pagan poets look back to a golden age. So that even the pagans before, who wouldn't have read scripture, would have had some sense of something like Eden. They wouldn't have called it Eden, they would have called it a golden age. Because everybody would have understood that perfection precedes imperfection. It assumes it. Whatever's imperfect in the world, it assumes that there was something perfect. It had, there had to be something good for, for whatever comes into this world. So it's, this golden age was assumed that people descended from gods and there was this golden age and people got along and something happened. So even the great, even the great pagans had this intuitive sense that something was lost. And that, that permeates their writing and it permeates Christian writing. What happens in the, this is too complicated. I mean, your question is, what happens in the 17th century with the Copernican revolution when science replaces it is that, and this actually is a really good question because it, it, it helps clarify what's going on here. A mythic world gets replaced by sciences. People look at myths as if they're lies. I don't look at myths that way. I think myths are a way of showing us something that can't be shown in any other way. It's, it's the way in which the divine enters into our world. Science won't allow that. Science will look at myths as lies. They're, they're stuff of fancy. But with that break becomes, for the first time in the pre-Christian world, in the post-Christian world, you lose this sense of looking back or looking forward or back to that fullness of time that you're talking about. But, and, and I, it's too complicated, but let me just try, no, it's a really good question, it's, but let me try to illustrate the, the complexity. So you'll have, because I'm, I'm assuming everybody will, will be able to respond to this right away, you'll have Robert Frost writing a poem in which he uses the word, what to make of a diminished thing. He's got Eden in his mind, birds are singing, and they're singing this song, as if, they're, as if the birds are aware of something lost in their singing. That's Robert Frost, who was the poet America, you know, what, 30, 40 years ago. So you can't read Frost without being aware that he's aware of something lost. 90% of his poems, even if he's not explicit about it, give some sense that something's lost. Swinging in birches, the kid at the end of Swinging in his birches is swinging toward heaven. He's saying that because heaven doesn't exist anymore. It's as if there's this longing for something lost. So in a poet like Robert Frost, um, you've got a poet illustrating what you're saying, that there's this sense of, so if everything was pointing forward, once that moment came, was everybody looking back? Lots of great poets were. Does that mean all of them? Absolutely not. 
So if you look at a modern poet like Wallace Stevens, um, who I think is one of the greatest poets of the 20th century, he, 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 he has... Everything in his poem makes the point that there is no God, there is no order to the world, that the only order that exists is the order created in poetry. Because that world is gone, the world we're talking about. So the only thing of beauty, the only thing of order that has any meaning for Stevens, who is a great, great poet, is what we create ourselves. So in his poems, he's constantly looking back to um, New England, New Jerusalem. Those words haunt his poetry. But he does it with a sense that that world's gone, it's dead. That now the only meaning for a modern is in whatever he can create on his own. And I'm, I'm sure this is going to resonate, re resonate with everybody. Watch TV today. You can't watch television without showing couples with this title. Create your own world. Create your own virtual reality. There's no nature. There's no God. We have the technical means to do what we want. You can change your sex. You can do whatever you want. We lived in a world that's a product of a scientific world that cut its ties with that past. And the answer to it is now whatever happens is in our hands. God's not here. It, everything that happens is going to depend on how good we are or how capable we are with what we do. So if you look at a lot of modern literature, it's despairing. It's, it tries to be heroic because it can't depend on anything anymore. I mean, so the answer to your question is yes and no, that lots of poets look back, but we live in a, what lots of people call a post-Christian age, that God doesn't exist anymore, that moderns um, think of themselves as being liberated from superstitions, you know, religions and so. In this course, <laughs> we're dealing with what I'm calling prophetic because I'm saying, here are great poets and even however different, however various they are in what they do, um, they're, they're extraordinary in one respect. What they do shows us something about our human nature that very often is painful to watch, but they're also showing us something divine at work in our life. Otherwise, I would not be here. You wouldn't have to suffer all of this. I should get you a map, Mary. It's up. It was in Greece, wasn't it? No, no, it's across the sea on the northern tip of the coastline. I think it's, isn't it near Turkey or Istanbul? It's, yeah. 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 It's across the sea in the, in the north of the Aegean, and that, it's the coastline of Turkey, I think. And, and one of the things to say right now, um, just to make you aware, we'll get to it in a second, but um, when Troy gets sieged, when it's attacked by the Greeks, um, it's not just the local people who are called to defend Troy. Priam calls people from all over. So what, we're, what we become aware of when we're watching this war go on between the, the West and the East is the Eastern people make up a multitude of peoples. Homer's gonna make that clear. They can't talk the same language, they're gabbling. So we're, we're, we're made aware by what he does that he's really dealing with a west-east battle. 
That's fundamental. And what he's going to show at the end, I'm giving things away here, I don't like to do that, but that he's going to show that something emerges in the West that doesn't exist in the East. That this new understanding of the human person is something peculiar to the West. I believe it's still true today. I think most of us, when we look at this, we'll see some sense to it. But Okay, any other... I want to get to the Iliad to get us going. Any... Just a couple of personal things. And I would like everybody to take these very, very seriously. One is... Um, uh, my experience of the Iliad is that it's not an easy book to read, so just know that. Um, I did not sleep last night after reading book five. I was fighting the Trojans all night. Mary? <laughs> Mary, Mary, you know what I'm going to say right now. You've got to know. Stop whining. Stop whining. I've been waiting for two months to say that. God, I've been waiting for the moment. You gave that to me. I don't believe, I don't believe you. You gave that to me so I could say that to you. I've been waiting for two months to get back at you. I don't want to hear your whining. Here, the, the, uh, the Iliad's not an easy read. Um, but here's the encouragement, and I, I'm saying this. Two things. One is, be patient. When, I, I hope you have had some sense now that as we go through that in class, a lot is going to become clear in class that you won't get on your own. That was true for me. First time I read the Iliad, it made no sense to me at all. Absolutely at all. I, I read it after I graduated from Berkeley because I heard that it was one of these great stories, you know, and I read it and I didn't, I just thought, what's the big thing, you know, but as I went on to read it in graduate school, it, it I mean, it, it took on this different meaning for me, but the second thing is, if don't get frustrated, I mean, you can sleep, stay with it, be patient, trust in our class, because a lot's going to come out in class that's going to pull things together, you should know that by now, you're going to get a lot out of class, that's true for all of us, I, I, can't, I can't express enough gratitude for the teachers who have helped me see things that I never saw, you know, before I took the classes, that's why teaching Learning is so important for all of us. We need each other. So, and the second thing is, if you get behind, I really don't want you to miss. Don't come. Don't not come. You know, don't say to yourself, "I haven't read. I can't." Don't do that. I'm not going to give you quizzes. I should. Um, I'm not going to give you quizzes. Be, my belief is that even if you haven't read it, you'll get a lot out of it from what we do at class. Just hearing this stuff is going to. I hope it will. You know open these horizons to you that you'll see and feel things that you wouldn't have without these. So if you don't read, I mean, I, my, you know, my belief is if you read and you participate in that life in the book, it's, you're gonna, it's gonna mean a lot more. If you go to Cliff Notes, you're just gonna have ideas in your head. It's not gonna be the same thing. It's like knowing about the Eucharist and participating in it. When you participate in something, it's gonna affect you so much more. So read it. But if, if you have trouble, if, you know, family demands or work demands get a hold of you, come to class. Be patient. We've got, we'll have a month on this, um, at least so. Um, two thoughts. Plato's great critique, which was philosophic, had its roots in Homer. 
He loved Homer, but he was also very, very critical of Homer. Most of the things that he has to say about Homer in the Republic are negative. But Plato gave us that image of the cave. Remember that we have to learn to distinguish between good and or appearances and reality. Um, the call of the ancient world for Homer, for Plato, for the Old Testament was justice, not love, justice. Giving another what's due. That's going to be a great concern of the Iliad, giving another his due. Um, we are called to do that in our own lives. Plato's great criticism, his great um, push for us was, mind your own business. We cannot begin to do justice to other people if we don't begin changing ourselves. So when you read, keep these questions of justice alive. Who's the hero of the Iliad? Is it Achilles? I'm going to narrow it here. Is it Achilles or Hector? Lots of moderns look at Hector as the hero of this book. They cannot stand Achilles. Saying that truthfully, they just cannot stand him. Who's the hero of this book? Is it Achilles or Hector? Who's the most just? Who has changed the most? Remember how important that is for our works. That in the tragic hero, um, he, he reaches a point of recognizing there's something wrong in him, and he changes. The church calls that a metanoia. We come to a point where we realize there's something wrong with us. I'm not good. Um, I've let somebody down. Or, and that moment is important because it helps change us. It helps us become a better person. So in this book, who's the hero? What's, who's the most just person? Okay. And what's the, fun, what's the fundamental difference between East and West? In the way they look at the human person. West, East. How do they look at the human being? The gods are going to line up on both sides. You already know that if you've been reading. And don't get stewed about them. We're going to cover it so they'll all get clear. But look at the gods because the identity of the gods is crucial for understanding the identity of the people. Athena, Poseidon, Hera are on the West. Aphrodite, Ares, Apollo are on the East. What does that signify? What it shows on the surface is the gods, the gods are present on both sides. So there's no way we can look at this as a black-white. The gods are there, but, but different aspects are revealed in each culture, East and West, by virtue of the gods, the ones who oversee them. So just don't make a big thing of it, but just be aware, and as you go through, ask yourself once in a while, what does this show us about the East? What does this show us about the West? That these gods line up the way they do. Because at the end, at the end, I hate giving away endings, you know that. How can I do this? How can I do this? At one point, Zeus is going to tell the gods to stay out of the war. They're all going to be called out. They cannot defend their loved ones anymore because the gods are always attached to humans. That's what they do. At one point, Zeus is going to say, stay out of the war. The gods are going to cheat a little bit, too. That's why Homer didn't like them. Um, but something happens to bring those gods back in the war. And when they do, the gods are going to go to war with each other. And they're going to line up according to this identity that they have with East-West. What does that battle say to us about the humans and the nature of God? Okay, so major questions ahead of us. Homer's showing us something about man's relationship to the gods, but the differences between cultures, East and West. 
Okay? I believe those differences are still present. I, I think if you think about East and West today, you'd, you'd have a hard time denying it. It's just there are fundamental differences between them. But, so keep those in mind, okay? A reminder, going back to our, because we're leaving the modern world, we're going into another world. I just, I'm going back to some things, you know, I put out when we first started. What is poetry? Remember I said at the very beginning, poetry gives us a knowledge by experience. It doesn't give us ideas in our heads. It doesn't leave us in abstractions in our heads. It takes us back to the concrete world as we know it in our bodies. That's absolutely essential. It gives us knowledge by experience. It returns us to the world, except in the world that we're returned to, it's formed. So even though we return to a world full of battles and conflicts and sorrows and violence, there's some good coming out of that world by the form that it's given by the poet. We're helped to see some truth that we might not have seen in the world. We're helped to feel some beauty we might not have felt. So literature enlarges our capacity to know and our capacity to feel. By our identification with other characters, it increases our capacity for empathy, to feel what another person feels. It makes it a little harder for us to be judgmental, you know, because I think we tend to be too quick to be judgmental. It helps us to see that there's more going on in the life of a person than we realized. Maritain said, poetry, Jacques Maritain, French, I think one of the greatest philosophers of the 20th century. He was a Catholic philosopher, extraordinary man, Jacques Maritain. He said, poetry is a form of communion between the secret self of the poet and the secret self of things. In poetry, we find ourselves becoming united with another. It can be a flower. It can be the wind hover. Remember the bird? Hopkins' description of the bird. It can be a war. But through the poetry, we're allowed to enter into the, uh, uh, the inner life of another person, the secret life that lots of people don't know. If that's not clear, how many people in Othello, how many people in Othello, that world, Othello's world, felt what he did at the end of that play? How many people? Any? No. Who felt, who was allowed to feel what he felt? Shakespeare and the reader. When we enter this world of, of Achilles and the Iliad, one of the questions is going to be asked. Achille, well, I can't. One of those two men, Achilles or Hector, is going to be the great figure of that work. How many people in that world, on either side, Trojan or, Trojan or Achaean, how many of them will have entered into the interior of either Hector or Achilles? The poet always helps us to go into the life of another being. Anthony and Cleopatra. How many, how many people did Caesar, could Caesar feel what we were allowed to feel with, about Anthony and Cleopatra? No, no. So poetry enlarges our sight. We see more and it helps us to feel more about what's going on in the world. Does that make it easier? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. It's much easier when it's simple and black white. Melville's Ishmael in the novel Moby Dick said this, 
Queequeg was a native of Rokovoko, an island far away to the west and south. It's not down on any map. True places never are. That's from Ishmael. Remember, in poetry, we're always invited to go to a place. It may not be literally true. Troy happened to be a real place. But the poet is taking us to a different space to help us see different things. Does the empirical scientist see those things? No. Poetry's given us a different kind of knowledge. It's going into the inner and outer worlds together. Okay. So in that sense, it can, be, it can be prophetic when the poet helps us to see universal truths and truths about ourselves that sometimes we don't always want to see. Okay. So now to Homer. So that's just a reminder of some of our first principles, some of the things that are important for us to keep in mind. Homer lived about 800, roughly in that area. He was blind. As I said before, um, he was looked at as um, a vates, a sage, um, a poet. He would sit down in the middle of a community. People would pick up their glasses. They were wiser than we are. They would go to the, in the community and sit around and listen to a poet speaking, and they would all be drinking wine. Got to get father on board here. Or this board, or whoever's. Um, he would be at the center of the community, and people would listen to his story, and they all would be drinking wine. I mean, they would listen to the story, and it, it was liturgical. It, it, it was their sense of being in the presence of wisdom that was being passed on. Imagine, take the poet away. What would unite people? What would keep them together? What would, what would keep helping them to learn? Um, and he told the story of a war that took place 400 years before he lived. That's what's so extraordinary. He wasn't present. And put it, put it differently, would any man present at that war have been able to do justice to that story? I don't think so. His wounds, his feelings, his anger, his sense of vindication when he won the war. I mean, how many people could have stepped back sufficiently to have been faithful to that story? There are several backstories, mythic backstories. Um, one of them has to do with the founding, and I'm, I hope I can get these right. Troy was founded um, first by a man named um, Dardanus, and um, he was the founder. Aeneas is going to come from his line. When Dardanus died, his kingdom passed to his grandson, Tros, from which we get Trojans. And his son called Elus, Elus, from which we get the Iliad. That's the name of the city, Elus. It should be, you don't have to look, but it should be in the notes there, the Troy legend background. Um, that's less important. It's going to be important when we get to the Aeneid. It's not going to be very important right now, but just remember that Dardanus was the original founder of Troy. Um, the, um, Laomedon, who was um, Eulus's son, um, was allowed to have the help of the gods Poseidon um, let's see, who, who is it? I think it was... Um, there were two gods, I think Apollo and Poseidon, I'm not sure. But they were supposed to, they were supposed to um, do a penance 
because they had revolted against Zeus. So they were sent to help um, Laomedon build the city. Now think about that, because the gods were involved in the building of the city when it was founded, okay? But Laomedon didn't honor the agreement with the gods, and he didn't pay them what they were owed. Which is, remember my, the opening psalm, unless the builder, you know, the, unless the Lord build the city, remember? that he had the help of the gods, but he didn't properly honor them for the help that they gave him. So just hold on to that. Um, and when um, Heracles came to help him, he promised him a gift that he didn't give him. He reneged on his gift. So he, he once again offended a human and the gods by his actions. Peleus, Achilles' father, went to war against Troy. So there's already in the background all of these... Um, injustices that have involved Peleus, Achilles' father, okay? Um, one other backstory. Zeus loved this nymph whose name was Thetis. This is Achilles' mother. And because Zeus was warned that the offspring would be more powerful than he was, he forced her to marry a mortal, Peleus. So Thetis, a goddess, marries Peleus, Achilles' father, and conceives Achilles. Almost all the great heroes, in fact, I think all of them, are descendants of the gods in one form or another. What happens at that wedding is that Thetis is, um, is given this shield as a form of recompense, as a way of honoring her for, because of her humiliation, being forced to marry a, mult, a mortal. Now hold on to that. Just remember that. It's really important. She's a goddess, she was humiliated, and was given a shield. That shield will be Achilles' shield through the greater part of the battle, okay? When, I can't tell you, something's gonna happen involving his armor that's gonna be absolutely instrumental for everything that goes on in this book. So just remember this backstory, okay? Thetis is his mother. When Agamemnon dishonors him in the beginning, we'll look at it in a minute, he goes to Thetis to ask for her help um, because she's helped the gods before. So it's a feminine figure who has helped the gods in, in times when they were in struggle. She's Achilles' mother, and, and it's to her that she, he goes to when he's humiliated by Agamemnon. The last backstory is during that wedding between Peleus and Thetis, um, the god um, Eris is invited, or not, not invited, because she's not, she comes spiteful, and throws an apple into the wedding ceremony that says the most beautiful. And Paris is chosen to decide on who that person is. So the three goddesses are brought forward, Aphrodite, Hera, and uh, Athena. He has to choose between those goddesses. Each one of them offers him a different gift. The one that he gets from Aphrodite is, has far more to do with beauty and sexual pleasure. And he chooses her and as a result, he gets, is, seems to have a claim on Helen. Okay, now those are the backstories. Now, every one of those stories involves wounds. Every one of them. Dardanus, the founder, um, Laomedon, who um, insulted the gods, Paris, um, who offended the gods by his choice because he had to choose one god or goddess over another's, um, Thetis, who was humiliated. Um, by being forced to marry a mortal. 
So part of the backstory to the Iliad, and we, there's nothing is made of it. We're, we're in the middle of the, in the beginning of the story. We're thrown into the story. It, it has to do with this conflict between Achilles and Agamemnon. And occasionally we'll get allusions to it. So we have to piece it together. But it's crucial to hold on to those backstories. The, the most important thing to think, to remember right now is that the backstory to this war, even though it doesn't, nothing is said in the beginning to make us pay special attention to it, is there is behind this war this sense of grievances and old wounds. And one of the questions of the epic will be, can these wounds of the past ever be settled? Can they ever be finally answered? Now, this is before Christ comes into the world, okay? So you ought to have some sense of what the answer is, but that's a serious concern for Homer, okay? The cause of the battle, the war, is Paris takes Helen away from Menelaus, Helen's husband, brings her to Troy to get back at him in retribution. The Greeks gather these armies together, go to Troy to reclaim Helen, because when Paris took her, he was violating the codes of hospitality. You welcome people into your home. You don't betray them. And he violated um, the marriage bond. He took a wife away from the husband. And we, we, it's a question how much Helen just went on her own. But anyway, to avenge that wrong, the Greeks come to Troy. Okay? So the backstory is there are all these disorders and wounds from the past. People seem not to be able to get rid of them. And they involve the gods. Even the gods themselves are wounded in some ways by what humans do. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. I thought Helen wanted to go because she called herself a slut. And she said she Mm-hmm. Forsake my father's house. Yeah. She yeah. Us. Yeah. So I figured she wanted to go. Mm-hmm. She talked about the Aphrodite. Yep. Yeah. And I, yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm sh- nothing's. We don't. We can't say explicitly, but all the evidence points that way. The other thing to remember: she's been there for nine and a half years, and she's been watching people die. So, whatever her feelings were nine and a half years ago. Um, it's, it's hard to b- believe that she wouldn't have come to feel a sorrow that she may have felt when she first left Menelaus, you know, or f- whatever the circumstances were. She said that because she said she wanted to go back to her husband. Well, she, she, doesn't, <laughs> she, doesn't do, she doesn't do anything that suggests that, that I can remember, but find a passage and we'll look at it. Here, let's start the book. I want to... Um, some terms. These are crucial. We're entering an epic world. We've been raised on novels. This is not, it's a narrative. So it's like a novel, it's a narrative. But it's novel, the word comes into existence in the 16th century because it means new. That's what the novel is. Because a new form of, a new form of narrative enters in the 16th century with a scientific revolution. So the novel becomes empirical oriented. The mythic world is put behind. Is everybody clear? There's a demarcation, radical. The epic belongs to a mythic world. It's a narrative. The novel's a narrative. But the novel's new because you don't find gods jumping in and out of the action. We're in a new world. It's a scientific world. That's the world of the novel. So the, the word epic comes from the word 
epos. It means a word, a song. But in the ancient world, it meant a divine word. This is absolutely crucial. When Homer begins his poem, he begins with an invocation to the gods because he knows. He knows he cannot tell this story without the help of the gods. Why? Because the gods are involved at every point. Is, I mean, you can't find anything more radically different from the novel in that respect. All epics, Homer, the Iliad, the Odyssey, Virgil, the Aeneid, even Dante is going to invoke gods at, at Christ and um, at various points in his work. So the word epic comes from epos, a word, a divine word. The poet begins with an invocation, it's a prayer, because there's no way he can tell this story without the help of the gods. So its source is divine. In that sense, it's prophetic. The gods are giving him help that he, to do something he couldn't do on his own. <clears throat> the goddess that he's calling on, is her name is um, Calliope. She's one of nine muses. The nine muses... The nine muses are, this is what's important here. The nine muses were offsprings of Zeus and Mimosine. Mimosine refers to what we can think of in terms of a cosmic memory. It's, it's the word from which we get um, mnemonic. Teachers get it. You, you have devices to help students remember things, mnemonic devices. The origins of that is Mimosine. It's a cosmic memory. So oh, this is so important. Moderns look at this as technical, as if it's meaningless. It's not. The nine muses are the sources of inspiration that help take human beings back into this spiritual life, which is unaccessible to them through our senses. Through their senses, okay? Yes. Good. Accidents happen. Um, did everybody hear that? The nine muses, they're the sources of inspiration for all, all areas of knowledge. Each one of the muses was a source of inspiration over a particular field. It could be dance, music, arts, history, okay? Calliope is the muse of epic poetry. So Homer's appealing to that specific Muse. Remember, the muses are openings into this cosmic sense of a spiritual order involving the gods and men. Okay, so we're entering a, a richer, fuller world. Okay. So the invocation is a prayer. It opens with a prayer. In medius race, every epic begins in medius race, in the midst of things. Now hold on to this. This does not mean mathematical middle. 
because some people in the midst of things, in the middle in the middle of things. It does not mean that in the middle of things. It means in the midst of things. So when you're going along, we've talked about this before in the in Shakespeare. When you're going along in your life and suddenly you learn that Aunt Mabel has run off with a you know, she's left her husband and her family or you discover your kids are on drugs or it doesn't matter what it is. You're going along in your life and you think everything's okay and suddenly something happens and you're in the midst of things. You suddenly realize all along there's been a disorder and you've never seen it. And that's a moment of awakening. And you suddenly realize there are things there that you have to look at that you didn't have to look at before. So, in medias res does not mean in the middle of things, it means you're in the midst of things. This is a heavy moment. Every work of art, every great work of art starts there. We Scarlet Letter, Moby Dick, Anthony and Cleopatra, Othello, it doesn't matter. You find yourself in the middle of something, you don't see what's coming, and suddenly you have to begin to look at things differently. Okay? In the midst of things. In medias res. Epithets are tags, um, ox-eyed hera. They're usually a, a series of adjectives that are linked together. It's a compound. Um, Gray-eyed Athena, um, wine-dark sea. Okay, you'll come across those epithets. Is that clear? Epithets are just a tag describing things. It's, way, it's Homer's way of showing this that when, this is so good, he's amazing. It's Homer's way of showing, no matter what you look at, you can look at the sea. The sea is not just the sea. The sea is the wine-dark sea, or it's gray-eyed Athena. There's always something about a thing that relates it to something else. There's more going on. It's a, it's a rich complex of realities. Epic similes. Often you go through your reading and Homer will describe something in terms of others. You know what a simile is. It's, it's when you're describing something, you use the word like or as. Um, he, he was like a bear. Oh, angrily coming after you in something. Um, catalogs, the epic catalogs are long lists of things. Very often Homer will list things. It's a form of education to say this is what's going on. There's a lot of things here. One of the most important catalogs in the whole of the Aeneid or Iliad will occur in book two, when Homer gives us the catalog of the ships. There'll be this long list. You'll look at it and think, boring. No, no, no. I was running through that part. Helen, go away. <laughs> the, Homer, by the way, just so, uh, principle, Homer never does anything without ordering them. Because what he's doing is showing there's an order to life. If you look at the catalog, just the catalog of the ships, it took me a long time to see this because it didn't. But if you look at the catalog of the ships, you'll see something really interesting. Both flanks are, are occupied by the two strongest men in the Achaean army, Aias and Achilles. They are the strongest men there. When, when there's a battle in the 11th book, it's Hector challenging the Greeks. Achilles is out of the war by then. But Aya steps up, and it's a draw. That means he's in strength in some way. He's like Achilles. So Aias, Achilles. So it's very important. Homer won't do anything without ordering. We're going to learn a lot from him. Who's in the middle? Because obviously that would say something, right? 
Because you would think, here are the two extremes, they're extremes of strength, problems there. The middle would be an image of virtue, the mean. Because that's what virtue is. Homer knew that, or I mean, uh, um, Aristotle knew it, he got it from Homer. Plato got it, he got it from Homer. Who's the most prudent man in the Iliad? He happens to be the name of the second epic we'll read. Odysseus. He's a man of prudence. The, the Odyssey will open. Tell us, muse, the man of many ways. The many cities he came from. Odysseus is a man of complex mind. He learns what to do with different people. So the Odyssey is going to teach us a man of prudence, wisdom. The Iliad is about a fighter. Okay? This Achilles in his anger. And the last word, Aristia, means excellence. Very often you'll know that um, you'll be reading a passage and suddenly you'll come across a hero who will have his Aristia. The, the modern would call it a zone. You know, you hear that. When, I remember years ago when we watched the, when the 49ers were doing so well. Um, what's it? Um, Joe Montana and Steve Young. The, the commentators would say they're in a zone. You know, it'd be three minutes to go, and there's, I mean, if you've watched football games, you've seen football players do it. They'll go down the field, and it's like something's watching over them. They cannot miss. There's no way they're going to be stopped. You look at it in amazement. There are going to be moments like this in the war where somebody will be in his aristide, his excellence. And when he's there, nobody can stop him. We all know moments like that, um, battle or not. Those are, those are some of the major terms. Here's the plot. I want to do this and then I'm just going to read the opening and we'll stop. Um, here's the plot. The book opens with a ransom. With the priest crises bringing a ransom to get his daughter Chryseis back because she was taken ransom. She was taken, sorry, captive when the Greeks were raiding the outlying cities. He'll be refused and it will bring Agamemnon and Achilles um, into battle. There will be a moment um, when Achilles is going to withdraw from the war. When he withdraws from the war, this whole middle section of the book will show the Trojans in the ascendancy. They're going to dominate the Greeks. The Trojans are going to finally come to the Greek ships at the shoreline where they've been lined up for nine and a half years and they're almost going to destroy them. Patroclus, who is Achilles' great friend, says, you pitiless man, if you're not going to go back in battle, let me wear your armor on the back. He puts his armor on, goes in, I can't tell you what happens. The book will end with a ransom. And I can't tell you what happens there either. But structurally, it is like a vase. And I'm not kidding. It's absolutely like a vase. It's perfectly symmetrical. Everything that happens in the beginning is reversed. Something happens to turn that whole act, a, 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 a war, turn that whole action around and conclude on something, nothing short of amazing. Okay? Now, last, so that's just in a brief description of the plot. 
One of the most important things to know about this book is this. The war has been going on for nine and a half years. Okay, this is crucial. What's the significance of nine and a half years? Yep. Nine and a half means, because ten's completion, nine and a half means in medias race, we're in the midst of things, something is about to happen. And it's going to bring the war to a close. Troy's going to be destroyed. Now lots of moderns are going to look at this cynically and say, this is a war story about the stupidity of men. Men stupidly killing each other. There's some truth to that. I don't think that's what the story's about. Men are always going to go to war. They're going to do stupid things. We've already seen that in all the Shakespeare plays. <laughs> Men are capable of doing really stupid things. Um, this is about something extraordinary. But nine and a half means we're close to completion. We're at the end of things. So one of the questions is, what's going to happen um, to bring about this change, to bring about this reversal, okay? So those are some of the opening concerns to have as you read. Now let me just, I want, what I want to do is just open, uh, go to the opening and read this exchange between Achilles and his king just to get everybody started. We'll stop. So just a brief reading here. So go to the beginning. So it begins in the invocation, Sing Goddess, the anger of Peleus' son. Now remember what I said before. Wrath is a vice. Anger is not. You go back to that, those trajectories of the emotions. Remember, anger is the one that's in the middle. Anger is the rectifying, it's the rectificatory virtue. It helps mediate both ones. As you're moving towards the thing you love, anger um, helps you answer things. Um, gives you the strength to go through it. On the negative one, Anger is what you call on to answer those things that threaten you, that will lead to sorrow, the loss of what you love. This is not about Achilles' wrath. Some epics will start that way. It's about his anger. There's a difference. Um, which put thousandfold upon pains upon the Achaeans, hurled in their multitudes in the house of Hades, strong souls of heroes, but gave their bodies to be the delicate feastings of dogs, of all birds, and the will of Zeus was accomplished. The two themes of this book are Achilles' anger and the will of Zeus. What was God's will for this battle? What will the Iliad show us? Okay. Apollo is the one who set it in motion because of this ransoming. Now hold on, two really crucial points. Buried, but absolutely crucial. In this world, you're going to see men doing stupid things all the time all the time, and not take any responsibility. These men, all of them, seem to live in a world in which reflection has no part. They just do what they do because they think it's right. Okay? There's not a strong sense of right or wrong. It's not, reflection is not a part of this world. They're, they're living by a code of honor. You know, when, when Paris took Helen, he violated a code of honor. Um, Priam, the father of the Trojans, is going to protect what Paris did, his son, as a matter of honor. We're going to have to look at that. But they're not very reflective. What's interesting about this book is it begins on a ransoming, that they did something that they didn't know they'd have to pay for. The priest of Apollo comes with ransom, say to Agamemnon, give me my daughter back, Chryseis. Um, 
He doesn't. A plague comes, and Achilles, who's not the king, calls the Achaeans into a, um, an assembly. And he says to the king, give her, give her back. We're dying. There's a plague here. Give her back. It will settle it. And Agamemnon refuses. He says, I'm going to be without a woman because your identity is equivalent to the booty that you have. It, is that any different from modern America? Your identity is based on your income, your house, the size of it. We're in a world in which a person's honor, his dignity, is contingent based on his booty. And what's booty in this world? Armor, swords, horses, chariots. What? All the things that make a man a strong warrior. What's at the top of that list? Women. So right here at the outset, the priest is calling for his daughter back. Agamemnon refuses to give her back. Achilles says, give her back. Stop the plague. Agamemnon says, I am not going to be without my booty. You're going to have your girl and I'm not going to have me. I mean, think about what that says about the men and the king. Achilles is ready to take out his sword and kill him. Athena comes in, I'm going to read it, and says, don't. One day you will get your honor back. So a god comes in to stop him, a goddess to stop him. He withdraws from the war. When he withdraws from the first book to the 9th and 11th, 13th, 15th in there, the Trojans are going to have the upper hand. The, the, the Greeks are going to be slaughtered. The, the Trojans are going to bring the war right to the ships. The ships have been on that coastline for nine and a half years. So it looks like they're going to be destroyed. Something happens to change it. Okay? But that's the beginning of the book. It's all about honor and what honor means. And it begins with a ransoming. When the book ends, a ransom is going to be offered. I cannot tell you what happens, but the reason I'm trying to underline it here, why did Christ come into the world? Ransom. To ransom our lives. These men have no sense of the implications of what they're doing. It doesn't mean they're less courageous. We live in a reflective world. They didn't. That's not a criticism of them. It's just there's this innocence that hangs over them. They don't look at things. They're acting on the basis of this honor code. That's all there was then. But it's interesting that the book begins and ends on an issue of ransoming and what men do with it and how aware they are of the implications of their actions. Okay? So here's the beginning. Um, Homer invokes the god's help, the goddess's help. Crises comes to, to answer or to ask for his daughter. Agamemnon refuses. Achilles calls an assembly. It's Achilles. King should have called that assembly. Somebody else should have. He didn't. Um, and Agamemnon tells him he is not going to be without his woman and Achilles is going to have him because that would be degrading to him. It would be an insult to him as the king. On page 65, this is Achilles' response. 65, towards the top. But Peleus' son, once again in words of derision, spoke to Atreides. Men are known by their family names, so Atreides, and did not yet let go of his anger. You, okay, here's, here's Achilles speaking to his king. You wine sack with a dog's eyes with a tear's heart. <laughs> what king is going to be glad to hear those words? Imagine going to a CEO and saying, I can't use the words. You know what words are. I think you're saying the words that we can't say. 
you wine sack with a dog's eyes, with a deer's heart. Never once have you taken courage in your heart to arm with your people for battle or go into ambuscade with the best of the Achaeans. No, for in such things you see death. Far better in your mind is it all along the widespread host of the Achaeans to take away the gifts of any man who speaks up against you, king who feed on your own people since you rule non-entities. That is, who has the spine to stand up to his king? So the men themselves are spineless here in, in what he's saying. Otherwise, son of Atreus, this were your last outrage, but I will tell you this and swear a great oath upon it. In the name of this scepter, which never again will bear leaf nor branch, now that it is left behind the cut stump of the mountains, nor shall it ever blossom again since the bronze blade stripped black and leafage. Remember, as a king, Agamemnon has this staff. It's the sign, the convention sign of his office. Um, <coughs> since the broad blade stripped bark and leafage, now at last the sons of the Achaeans carry it in their <coughs> sorry, hands of state which they administer the justice of Zeus because it's through that staff that that authority is expressed. This shall be a great oath before you. Some day longing for Achilles will come to the sons of the Achaeans, all of them. Then stricken at heart though you be, you will be able to do nothing when in their numbers before manslaughtering Hector they drop and die. And then you will eat out the heart within you in sorrow that you did no honor to the best of the Achaeans. Um, he's going to take out his sword. Athena stops him. Let me, I just want to ask one question and take one minute and then stop because it's... Um, you all have the picture, yeah? Achilles is going to withdraw from the war. Um, the Achaeans are going to drop like flies. His own people are going to die. There are lots of modern critics who say he should never have done that. He should never have done that. Because the cost of it will be the death of his own people. So let me stop just for one minute. And I know you haven't read enough, so it's not a fair question. Should Achilles have done this or not? Oh, sorry. Wait, sorry, Mary. You know that um, Agamemnon threatens to take Briseis. Yeah, he does take. Yeah, Ag um, Achilles' woman from him, so that he, Ag Agamemnon can give up his girl. So, in what transpires here is is that he that Agamemnon does finally give the girl back, but he does it by taking Achilles' woman from him, so which makes the asking? injury worse. Sorry. So is that what you're asking? Because I was saying. He has to follow his general, but then his wife. Does that take precedence? He's not a wife. He's a member. She's a captive. I mean, she, he treats her like a beloved, and she, she weeps when she gets taken away. My question is, did he do the right thing or not? Because lots of people are going to die. Over a woman? <laughs> going to get hung for that. Is it really over a woman? No, it's, it's really more about over honor. Yeah. But how do, you, how do you show honor in this book? It's by the possessions that you have and right. the so highest possession. Remember, Helen is what this thing is all about. So in their so, code, I guess his honor was violated or, or challenged by the king. Mm -hmm. Or he, he was humiliated. Right. Basically. 
So he lost his honor. And right. that was his way of striking back. So I guess, is he a better man? Sorry? I guess the question is, would he be a better man if he didn't think about his own honor, but more about the honor of his people saving their lives? So I guess in a way, he's not as honorable as, as one would think, based on their code of honor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but they took these women captive. They sacked their towns and killed the men, took the women. So how Booty, they, they took everything, soldiers, How honorable is that? <laughs> I mean, Helen did a good thing because she, remember, this is their code of honor. This is the, they don't know anything besides this code. Right. Oh, so that's their code of honor is to go sack the town, kill the men, and take the women. <laughs> Are you whining? <laughs> Here, anybody else? Come on. Anybody else? This war has been going on for nine and a half years. I know something's about to happen. If Achilles had not stepped in here, what do you think the likelihood would be for the next nine and a half years? Is it, I mean, what, stop and think. Why does the war go on for nine and a half years? This is, by the way, he do, this is really interesting. Homer does not start back when Paris takes Helen. He does not go back then. We're nine and a half years into the war. These people have been killing each other for nine and a half years. They're dropping off. They're dead. So something's happening right now. And it raises all sorts of problems with critics because lots of critics say he should not have done that. The answer to that is if he didn't, who's to say that this wouldn't go on for another? Something's wrong with these Greeks and the Trojans. And they don't seem to see it. Something's about to happen. And the interesting thing is Achilles is... Remember, everybody, their sense of dignity, who they are, depends on their booty. In this case, it's these women. that The father comes for his daughter. The, the king doesn't want to give up his woman. He's going to take Achilles' woman. That they're taking these possessions, so it's like stripping a man of who he is. But this time, the, the book, he, Homer opens the book on that moment when Achilles says, you wine sack, you cannot do that. And I swear an oath. Remember, I just read it. Um, not until everybody's dying. So lots of people are going to read this and say, um, what a selfish man. People are going to die because the kinds are going to die. And yet something's going to happen because of what he does here. Um, and one last thing, and then we're going to... Almost every one of the books that we've read has to do with an anti-hero. Somebody who steps out the conventions of his world. Remember the tragic hero is the one who steps out even Portia or Helena stepped out of their worlds, what they were doing. Nobody else in their worlds. Every central figure that we've looked at has stepped outside of the conventional world to do something different. And from the perspective of the conventional world, what they did made no sense. Here at the very beginning of our literature, a man is standing outside of his conventions, his honor code, and, and is going to put to risk the lives of all his men, he said, I, I will swear this, I will make this an oath. Not even when all the men are driven back to the ships will you see me. You will regret what you've done. So how do we look at Achilles here and what's Homer, what's Homer showing us about this honor? Because it's there on both sides. The Trojans are defending Paris because he's their own. 
In the seventh book, by the way, this, here's the Greek assembly. In the Greek assembly, there's nothing but fighting, quarreling, fighting everywhere. When we look at the Trojan assembly in book seven, it's absolutely peaceful. And the, the, one of the Antoners says, give, Gil, this is amazing. Antoners says, give Helen back. Because if you do, the war will stop. There it is again. You're going to save lives if you do something. Priam says, I'm not going to give her back. Let the God, like he's a pious man, very pious. Let the gods decide between us. Absolutely peaceful in the east. No conflict. Nobody standing up. Nobody threatening the king. In the west, rebellion, conflict, trouble. Um, and the assembly in book seven could have brought the whole thing to an end. And we, we know that if Achilles had stayed in the war, that, that the Trojans would not have the ascendancy. It's likely that the war would have gone on for another nine and a half years. Something's happening here in the West in this opening chapter. Okay? So what's Homer doing? Um, what's, what are we learning about the human person and our sense of honor? This thing called honor. The word for it in Greek, we're going to come back to it again and again. It's called. Plagueis. Honor. Plagueis. This honor, what seems to be this dignity that men have um, based on their possessions. This war has been going on, some say, because it gives the, the Achaeans a chance to accumulate booty. That's what the historians say. They just kept going because they wanted to get wealthy. All right? The more wealthy you are, the more powerful you are. Is anything different in modern America? I, am I speaking to, I mean, does everybody, am I overstating that to say that in modern America, the more money you have, the more power you have? That what drives Americans is money. Property, wealth, booty. That's our world. We don't do it by killing each other, or maybe we do. You know, I mean, you have these phrases called stabbing behind the back, watch your back, and I'm sure Father's done this. You know, when he talks about, um, um, what do you call it when you backstab when you're... Gossip, Gossip huh? No, it's, it's, it's St. Thomas's word for talking behind somebody's back. And, huh? I, yeah, those things. You know, that, that very often the words that we speak of a, of a person are, are really murderous. I mean, they're, they're intended to hurt. They're verbal, they're safe because you're not doing anything. But what they show is something inside the soul, not good. If you look at modern America and compare to what's going on in the Iliad, you can say it's one of the best critiques of the modern world that we've got, even though it was written 2,000 years ago. But it, Yeah, Helen, go ahead. Mm -hmm. Actually, they it almost seems like they were fighting among themselves, right? Mm -hmm. Each kind of takes sides, mm -hmm. yes. The Trojans and the other ones are with the Greeks, and, and so they're protecting their little humans, the mortals. And so, to me, it almost seems like they use the mortals as their own weapon. Weapons against each other, their own fights. Is that? Am I reading this? Sorry. They even talk about that specific issue in book five. What are you thinking of in five? What happened? Um, the 
gods had a meeting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. they, and and Leave it here. Let's come. But you're, I, I think that's a good way to put it. I, I, I want to wait until we get farther along to go into it. Because to me, it's a really rich issue that there, there are different gods defending different sides and different interests. Hera is the, for example, Hera is the goddess of the hearth. Diana is the virgin goddess. I mean, they stand opposite each other. One is for marriage, one is for virginity. Um, Zeus is the, the king of the gods, the head of the gods, even though he, sh he shares somewhat power with Poseidon and, uh, Poseidon and Apollo. Um, but each of the gods is... Here, let me put this, get this out. Each one of the gods is one sense an, an imago deo, an image of the god. They, they represent different aspects of godhead. And what we see are loyalties between certain gods that represent things and humans, so that Hera's on the west. Um, Aphrodite, who's the goddess of love and beauty, very erotic on the east. Ares, who's the god of passion, war. The two, the two gods associated with passion. Aphrodite, love. Ares, war. They're on the east. Wait, wait, just hold on. So, so for example, Athena... <laughs> in book, I think it's book five, Athena has no love loss when Diomedes wounds Aphrodite. She's her sister. She's glad to see her get wounded. Um, so there are quarrels between the gods, and what's really important here is that it's important to begin to be aware of what those gods represent on either side, because they represent very different things, very different values, if I can use that word. So I guess my question is, how much of it is free will in terms of what the mortals do with each other versus the gods controlling their actions? But in, indirectly, they're actually the gods are fighting among themselves through the, through the mortals. This is sort of what I'm Yeah, it's a good question. Let's wait on it. Okay. Well, only because with the, both of those questions, particularly free will, touches on deep things and things scholars argue about a lot. I don't want to put it, I don't want to give you an easy answer right now, but I just, everybody, everybody understands that question. I mean, let me put it basically. In Homer's world, do humans have free will or not? Are their actions determined by the gods or do they have free will? Just put it out there, okay? As you read, see what you think. All of you have a really good Christmas. All of you have a really good Christmas. Thanks, thanks, thanks.